listen. Just listen. I'm Miles Pulaski, and you're listening to Second Story Podcast. Second Story is Serendipity Theater Collective's hybrid performance series of stories, wine, and music. A collaboration among writers, actors, musicians, and others to create good stories and good times. The stories are written by the performers themselves. Sometimes funny, sometimes poignant, always thought-provoking. And now, Second Story storyteller, Whitney Debo. The craziest thing was driving him to the airport at four in the morning. It was just such an unlikely scenario, me still in my pajamas, him clutching his backpack and looking terrified, the pair of us going 70 down 94 at the crack of dawn like we were starting a road trip. It was pitch black outside when I pulled up in front of his sagging house on the northwest side, and neither of his parents came outside when I honked the horn. His house was dark, and after a few moments, Jorge emerged, lugging this huge, oversized suitcase. He tried to shut the screen door without making a sound, but it banged loudly behind him as I popped the trunk. Your parents know it's today, right? They know, he said, but my dad is at work and my mom just got home from her shift, so she's sleeping. He settled into the passenger seat of my car, placed his backpack on his knees, which were now bouncing like he just drank too much caffeine. Truth was, I could not imagine my own parents missing me leaving for college. It was probably because on the day I left for school, both of my parents took off work and drove me to Ann Arbor, the family car packed to the brim with essentials for my freshman year. Are you okay? I asked. Yeah, I'm okay, he said, and stared out the window. I wasn't convinced. I mean, the boy had never even been outside of Chicago, let alone on a plane, and here he was about to embark on his freshman year, not only out of the city, but in Puerto Rico. Hey, just remember you can always call or email me if you have any questions, all right? He nodded, reached into his backpack, and pulled out a plane ticket. He smoothed it over his jeans and studied the print. 6.45 a.m., it read. Chicago to San Juan. I had met Jorge a year earlier when I got a job in Steppenwolf's education department and took over the theater's after-school program. It was my first year teaching in any capacity, and I was still trying to figure out who exactly I was supposed to be to these students. Jorge was a shy, unassuming kid from Roberto Clemente High School who diligently showed up every Monday and Wednesday lugging this oversized backpack on his skinny frame. Jorge was the first student to really find his way into my novice educator heart, who somehow wriggled through the teacher-student divide when I wasn't looking, got under my skin, and stayed there. Maybe it was just because he hung around. When the other students rushed out of the door right at six o'clock on the dot, there was Jorge, offering to push in the chairs and help me clean up the room. Throughout the fall, he made a habit of carrying snacks up to my desk, where he would stand lingering as I punched out for the night. In the middle of the fall, Jorge bleached his hair and gave himself one of those triangular faux hawks with orange tips. Uh, what do you think of the new look, he asked. One evening, bounding up the stairs to my office, boxes of fruit snacks and Capri Suns in hand. Oh, I like it, I said, a little too quickly. Uh, you hate it, it's okay. You don't, you don't understand. I'm just trying to figure out what you're going for here. I'm just trying to, you know, be a little different, stand out, you know. He touched the tip of his faux hawk, which was rock solid with hair gel. Well, in that case, I really like it, I said. Well, good, because I already told my parents that you were into it. 
what? I said, yeah, he, you know, they don't know that much about this place except for that it's artsy. So when I got the new haircut, I told them Steppenwolf was totally behind it. I hope that's okay. Yeah, that's okay, I said. Because the truth was, Jorge and his haircut had already won me over. Hey, Whitney, he said one evening in the middle of November, can I show you something? From his backpack, Jorge removed a tattered mess of papers held together with a binder clip. So this is a play I wrote, he said. Do you think you could read it over? I mean, when you have time, I mean, I haven't showed it to anyone yet, so he nudged the stack of papers across my desk. The fact that Jorge had, at the age of 17, sat down to write a 100-page play entitled Roberto Clemente, My Life in High School, <laughs> was, of course, the first thing that struck me. I mean, it takes a different type of kid to do that. Someone motivated, thoughtful, someone with something to say, and the ability to sit down and write it out. The second was that he wanted me to read it. I realized then that Jorge was, in his own way, reaching out to me, and I was touched. I mean, I never would have pegged him as an aspiring playwright. And the truth was, had he not followed me upstairs every evening, I never would have known. Jorge had chosen me, not the other way around. And I was grateful. Of course I'll read it, I said, and tucked the manuscript into my bag. And you know, even though it was brimming with teenage angst and meandering subplots, the central story was not half bad. It was the beginning of the winter before I realized that Jorge hadn't mentioned anything about applying to college. So, walking up the stairs to my office one night, I asked him what his plans were for the following year. He shrank back and shrugged. I don't know, he said, his eyes darting to the floor. Jorge went on to explain that his parents could not afford school, the whole financial aid process totally bewildered him, and he had no idea what to do next. I thought of that ad campaign I had seen on the red line. What most students know about applying to college, it read, zero, zip, zilch. But then Jorge mentioned that he planned on attending a college fair at his school the following day, and he promised he would grab some materials so we could go over them the following week. I told him that he probably hadn't missed any deadlines, but we needed to move fast. It was my first year teaching, and this was the first student that really needed me, and I was ready. We were gonna lock this down. Okay, he said, glancing up from the floor, because you know, I really don't want to be stuck here next year. I already knew that Jorge felt that way, probably because the lead character in his play, Juan, a shy, unassuming Puerto Rican kid who wants to be a playwright, said those exact words on page 72. <laughs> the following week, Jorge arrived at Steppenwolf clutching a tattered orange folder that contained a single glossy brochure. This is where I want to go, he said, thrusting the brochure into my hand. I looked at the cover. Universidad de Sagrada Corazón, it read, Programa por Estudiantes de Estados Unidos. He went on to explain that the school was actually in Puerto Rico, where he had a bunch of family he'd never met, and he was eligible for a full tuition scholarship because he was both Puerto Rican and fluent in Spanish. This program is made for me, he said. It's like they are talking to me. For the first time, he felt targeted, singled out, chosen. The only problem? The deadline for the application was the following week. So we whipped into action. I wrote Jorge's letter of rec while he wrote his personal statement. I edited his personal statement while he got all his permission slips signed. We were a team and we were on fire. And in just a week, all we were missing were his transcripts. 
It was only in trying to extract Jorge's transcripts from Roberto Clemente that I really began to understand what exactly he was up against. Jorge told me that he had submitted the transcript request four or five times, but day after day, the school did not receive so much as a fax. So after a week of calling and leaving messages, I decided to just get in my car and drive to Clemente. When I arrived, I saw a line of students that stretched down the hallway and then snaked around the corner. One college counselor for a school of over 2,000 kids. As I waited in line at Clemente for almost an hour before a haggard woman who looked like she had not slept in days promised to fax Jorge's transcripts over to the school. At last, we had everything in place and Jorge was promptly accepted and given a full tuition scholarship. When he called me, he was totally out of breath, like he had just sprinted a mile. Looks like I'm going to end up different than Juan, he said, referencing the lead character in his play, who on page 100 ends up sitting at graduation with no plan, listening to other students talk about going to school. The week he was set to leave, Jorge helped me bring snacks up to my office one last time. What time's your flight on Saturday, I asked. Early, he said, 6.45 a.m. You have a ride, right? He shrugged and told me that his dad had to work early and his mom's shift ended late, so he would probably just take the blue line to O'Hare. Jorge had never even been to the airport before. So that is how I ended up on 94 at 4 o'clock in the morning, speeding down the highway, Jorge tapping his knuckles nervously against my window. We arrived at O'Hare as the sun was coming up, Jorge wearing this bright red t-shirt emblazoned with the name of the school across the front. His suitcase weighed too much, so we needed to stuff some clothes into a gym bag that I happened to have in the trunk of my car, which the airline let him take on as a second carry-on. As I watched him cross over into security, he looked back and managed a smile. I wish I could tell you that Jorge's first year at Sagrado was a success. That in my first year of teaching, I launched a student into the world who is now well on his way to achieving his dreams. But unfortunately, that is not what happened. Throughout the fall, we emailed regularly. All seemed to be going well, other than the occasional bad test grade, and after a while, the emails tapered off, and I assumed happily that Jorge had adjusted to college life. Then in March, I got a Facebook message that simply read, this is too hard. I feel dumb. I think I might be failing out. I told him to go talk to his academic advisor, gave him the email and phone number of the American counselor I knew, but I did not call the school. Maybe it's because I had 25 new students at Steppenwolf who needed me, or maybe it's because I thought Jorge was 18 and could handle it. When I emailed him a few days later to check up, he didn't respond, and I chose to believe that he'd had a bad day. In June, I got an email saying that he was back in Chicago and needed to talk to me. It was signed, I'm not going back to Sagrado next year. I'll explain when I see you. I'm sorry. He showed up at Steppenwolf the next afternoon, and I gave him a hug that lasted probably just over his 19-year-old hug capacity. He looked almost unchanged, maybe a little more meat on his bones, but he was still the same soft-spoken kid I had driven to the airport 10 months before. After asking about his family and his trip back to the city, I arrived at the question that I was dying to ask. What happened? He explained that the household Spanish he grew up with wasn't enough to cut it in his math and science classes and that once the school phased out classes in English, he had just fallen behind. Apparently, midway through the second semester, he had just given up, stopped going to class, and started hanging out at an aunt's house that lived nearby. I mean, I guess I'm gonna apply for a job somewhere, he said, sounding at once resolute and resigned. 
I mean, I want to finish my degree eventually, but right now I need to work. He shrugged and looked at me across the table, and all I could think was, no, 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 this was not the plan. He could see my disappointment even though I was trying to hide it, so I changed the subject and told him that now we had to brainstorm next steps on how to get him into a school here in the city, that it wasn't too late and he was not too far behind. He nodded, but he did not make any promises. After Jorge left, I was furious. Jorge, he had big dreams for himself, and I knew that not because he told me outright, but because I remembered his voice on the phone the day he got accepted, and because I read between the not-so-subtle lines of Roberto Clemente, my life in high school. As soon as he left, I called up the school, and I started half crying, half yelling at the first person who picked up, demanding to know how a school could let a student down so deliberately, a student who had traveled thousands of miles to just study and get a college degree. The woman listened patiently before saying, Miss Debo, I'm sorry, but we had no idea that Jorge was struggling. We just thought he was delinquent. We had tutors waiting, special classes too, but he never once asked. When I hung up the phone, I was deflated. She wasn't wrong. Jorge was 18 years old and perfectly capable of asking for help. But how many of my friends would have failed out of their freshman years had it not been for their college-savvy parents who were diligently monitoring their GPAs? But nobody was tracking Jorge, me included. He was my teammate, and I let him down. Or did he let me down by not following through once he actually got to the school? And maybe I had even done Jorge a disservice by holding his hand through the college admissions process because when he actually arrived at the school and looked to his side, his teammate was gone. But what was my responsibility here anyway? Should I have ended up on a team like that in the first place? Where does teaching end and parenting begin? I ended up sitting there for a few minutes, my head in my hands, watching the office empty out as five o'clock rolled around. After a while, I opened my desk and pulled out a photo, snapped at last year's end-of-the-year barbecue. The picture showed Jorge and all the other graduating seniors from my very first year, smiling with hot dogs and hamburgers in their hands, each of them set to start the next phase of their lives in just a few short weeks. And there was Jorge, right in the middle, ready to launch alongside his peers. As I slipped the picture back into my desk, I couldn't help but think of him 10 months earlier at 4 a.m., bumping his suitcase down the stairs, us going 70 down 94 as the sun came up, him terrified but filled with hope, and me thinking that I had it all figured out. That was Whitney Debo. If her story gives you ideas for your own story, we'd love to hear them. Please join us for our ongoing series at Webster's Wine Bar and the Morse Land or one of our upcoming special events. Visit our website for more details. Second Story Podcast is brought to you by Amanda Delheimer, Megan Steelstra, Ozzy Toten, Mikhail Fixel, and Sherry Pentamone. I'm Miles Pulaski. Second Story is funded in part by the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the Illinois Arts Council Estate Agency, the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, City Arts Grants, Arts and Business Council, the Chicago Community Foundation, a part of the Chicago Community Trust, the Arts Work Fund for Organizational Development, and listeners just like you. To find out more about Second Story, the performances, and our performers, or to make a donation, visit us at secondstory.com.